In February 2014, Miami-based investment firm MB America purchased a property on Miami Beach's Palm Island. The island, located between Watson Island and the better-known Star Island, was a man-made creation formed in Biscayne Bay in the 1920s as a way to develop even more valuable real estate in South Florida. Unlike many properties on the man-made islands, 93 Palm Island was never demolished and completely renovated. In fact, it was preserved. And MB Investments went out of their way to highlight how much the property had been preserved. This from a promotional video advertising the property for sale. MB America and more than 50 specialists from Boston gave their all to perpetuate the grandeur of the great Hollywood filmmakers and the era of swing that took the world by storm. Enchanting us with the glory and the vibrant dream of the American New Deal. To act, you need to love. And 93 Palm is living proof of a great love. And in August of last year, someone paid $10 million just for the chance to knock it down. That someone wasn't just anyone. It was developer Todd Michael Glazer and Nelson Gonzalez, Vice President of Berkshire Hathaway Home Services EWM. Glazer is known as one of the most aggressive and successful property developers in South Florida. But for spending $10 million, you would figure Glazer would get himself a better property, at least according to the description he gave to the Miami Herald. Quote, the house is a piece of crap. It's a disgrace to Miami Beach. Yet key members of the community rallied in support for maintaining the current property, going so far as to placing an item on the city of Miami Beach's land use board's agenda for the month of September, considering possible historic designation. Eventually, Glazer received an offer he couldn't refuse. Remember that line in a minute. Selling the house for almost $15 million only two months after purchasing it for $10 million. He compared the sale to someone giving him a $5 million lotto ticket. So why was there all this hubbub? Why was this old property such an area of focus for so many people? Was it just because it was a preserved property? A relic of 1920s Miami? No. It was because this was where Alphonse Gabriel Capone, Scarface, lived and died. Today. This day in Miami history. January 25th, 1947. The day that Al Capone's time in South Florida finally came to an end. The high times and low times All in the nightlife Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow. <laughs> I could really use Current. <laughs> I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. 
I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Al Capone's life ended in Miami, but it began, like many Miamians, in New York, born on January 17, 1899. However, the city he's most associated with is Chicago. Capone was sent to the Second City in 1919 at the suggestion of Johnny Torrio, the man who came up with the idea for the National Crime Syndicate. It wouldn't take long for Capone to establish himself in Chicago, rising to become one of, if not the most, powerful mob boss in America. But the problem is that the life expectancy for such a figure is not exactly as long as Capone might have wanted, and the pressure that he faced from both rival gangs and from political forces in Illinois began to be overwhelming. Capone and his closest allies would take trips out of the city. They'd buy a whole train and go to cities like Cleveland, Omaha, Kansas City, Little Rock, Arkansas, or Hot Springs, Arkansas. However, one spot stood out. One spot reminded Capone of a home he would never visit. Italy. That spot was Miami. He arrived in Miami with the intention to stay a while in December of 1927. He had called Miami the Garden of America, the sunny Italy of the New World, where life is good and abundant, where happiness is to be had even by the poorest. Poverty would not be a problem for Al Capone. Capone presented a very interesting question to Miami society at a very interesting time. He was well known as a mobster, and significant portions of the Miami community immediately worked to try to force Capone out of South Florida. But at the same time, this was 1927 and 1928, the real estate boom had bust, and Miami, a city which wasn't completely unaccustomed to living a little bit outside of the law, maybe couldn't afford to be so picky. Miami Beach Mayor J. Newton Lamas Jr. and City Manager Claude Henshaw requested a meeting with Capone. And Capone granted the request. He sat down with the two men and told them that if they wanted him to leave, he would do so. They confided that they weren't happy with him being in town, but also had no intention to use the force of law to push him out. And so an uneasy truce was struck. A more fruitful relationship for Capone would come in the person of Parker Henderson Jr. Henderson Jr., the manager of the Ponce de Leon Hotel, where Capone stayed originally, became fast friends with the mob boss. He became a kind of gopher, running errands, signing documents, even facilitating the purchase of 93 Palm Avenue. However, two problems soon emerged for Henderson Jr. Eventually, Capone asked him to purchase guns from a pawnbroker in Miami, and deliver them to a hotel room. Now that sounds like a problem for anyone. But it's particularly a problem when you're Parker Henderson Jr. And your father is Parker Henderson Sr., the most recent former mayor of Miami. In case you couldn't tell by now, one of those guns is going to wind up being pretty important. In fact, one of those guns was used to murder Frankie Yale. Yale had been Capone's second employee. 
based out of Brooklyn, assisting the boss getting Canadian whiskey into the United States. However, Yale was taking a cut of the profits, and this was something that Capone would not tolerate. Yale was killed on July 1st, 1928, in the first instance of a submachine gun being used for a mob hit in New York City. However, it was the handgun that was registered to a Miami purchase and placed Parker Henderson Jr. in legal peril. It would take months before New York District Attorneys would be able to connect the gun to Henderson and eventually Henderson to Capone. But by 1929, they believed they had the chance to make a connection. So, Louis Goldstein, an assistant district attorney from New York, flew down to Miami and met with Robert Taylor, the Dade County solicitor. And they asked for Capone to come in to testify about what happened with Yale. The date of that meeting? February 14, 1929. The same day that seven members and associates of Chicago's Northside Gang were killed, execution-style, in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Taylor, Goldstein, and Miami had unwittingly provided Capone the perfect alibi for any involvement in the massacre. But Taylor and Goldstein had another way that they were going to try to put Al Capone in prison. A number of the questions asked of Capone that day dealt with finances, so much so that Capone thought it was strange. He never saw the financial charges that would eventually bring him down. But before he faced those charges, he would have to face a fusillade of legal challenges in Miami-Dade County. Dade Public Safety Director Sam D. McCreary issued an arrest-on-site order, leading to Capone being arrested three times in May 1930 alone. In response, Capone filed suit, alleging harassment and false imprisonment. McCreary got the lawsuit dropped, then pressed charges against Capone, alleging perjury in Capone's original lawsuit filing. This chain reaction would eventually present one of the most dramatic courtroom scenes in the history of Miami-Dade County. He just kept on disobeying our orders and was arrested. Let's back up. Out of those four arrests, how many of those stuck? Stuck? What do you mean, stuck? How many was he found guilty of committing a crime? There's that twitch again. I hate to bring it up. <laughs> that audio you just heard is actually not from the 1930 trial, but it was from a reenactment based on the original transcript of the trial staged in Miami-Dade County in 2010, celebrating the centennial of the modern local court system here. The trial presented a real opportunity for law enforcement to put Capone away. Of course, it wouldn't be for murder or rum running or anything like that, but it appeared to be something. Judge E.C. Collins had other ideas. He ruled from the bench, dismissed the charges, and Capone was set free. It was the latest in a long line of legal victories for Al Capone, but it would wind up being his last. The next day, Capone decided to move to Broward County, where he had an entirely new development in mind, a large island where he could live a life of following the law, or maybe running a whole new kind of prohibition-eluding empire. None of Capone's big plans came to pass, and if you know anything about Al Capone's history, you know what happened next. Al Capone is through. Facing trial on income tax evasion, Al Capone finds an aroused government ready to put him behind bars. 
overlord of every type of vice, the man who rose to power during Prohibition leaves federal court a convicted felon. Those questions about finances in Miami in 1929 weren't just idle chit-chat. They were the beginnings of a tax evasion inquiry, an inquiry that would land Capone behind bars. The murder, the violence, the rum running. The government could never pin that on Capone, but they did know he had a fancy house on Palm Island and no income to report. Capone would not serve all 11 years in prison. He would eventually do about seven and a half. The reason? Failing health. Capone was diagnosed with both syphilis and gonorrhea upon his entry to the Atlanta U.S. Penitentiary in May 1932. Both diagnoses eventually led to a neurosyphilis that progressed throughout his time in prison. He bounced from Atlanta to newly opened Alcatraz before a request for parole by his wife, May, was eventually granted on November 16, 1939, citing his reduced mental capabilities. He spent time at Union Memorial Hospital in Baltimore in 1939 and 1940, receiving some treatment, before he was discharged to Palm Island, Miami Beach, Florida. An important question to ask is, of course, if Capone was found guilty of tax evasion, why didn't the federal government wind up with the house at 93 Palm Avenue? Well, the simple answer is, his wife and his brother Ralph found the money to keep it. Every time the government attempted to sell the Palm Island mansion, the Capones found the cash and kept it in the family. Reports of Capone's actual condition at this time vary a bit. Some lean on the reports of his physician and a Baltimore psychiatrist who claimed that he had the mentality of a 12-year-old child in 1946. Others report a man who definitely suffered from a decline in mental acuity and certainly could not handle the day-to-day roughness of the mob game, but could enjoy a fish off the back pier or reading the day's newspaper. But Capone's days were numbered. A stroke on January 21, 1947, dealt the first blow. After improving in condition, he contracted bronchopneumonia, then a heart attack on January 22nd. By January 25th, at 7.25 p.m., Al Capone is dead. From his vast profits, he built a palatial refuge in Miami. Death came quietly to him in his bed. Capone was gone, but there was still the matter of what to do with his body. Would he be buried in Miami, or would it be returned home to Chicago? While that question was answered, he spent days at Philbrick's Miami Beach, at 1333 Dade Boulevard. That location today? A vacant commercial property last occupied by an exotic car dealership. Finally, on January 29, 1947, Dade County issued the appropriate permits and Alphonse Capone was returned to Chicago, accompanied by his brother, Ralph, and two drivers from Chicago's Ragos Chapel. While Capone's physical form would depart South Florida for the final time in January 1947, interest in his impact on our community remains nearly three quarters of a century later. I want to very quickly thank you, the listener, for tuning in again to this episode of This Day in Miami History, a second episode, first time we've ever done that here. And it's a matter of appreciation for the folks who have joined us recently on Twitter and on other forms of social media. 
and who have subscribed on Apple Podcasts and on other podcast platforms. If you haven't already done so, please do so. I would appreciate it. And if you've done that, please leave feedback. Long story short, follow, rate, and review. Thank you so much in advance. Three very brief but very important shout-outs to important sources I used in the preparation of this episode. First off, the YouTube account of British Pathé, which is one of the largest collections of newsreel videos and audio around. If you like history, you'll get lost in that channel for days. Secondly, I want to single out a really important article published by Stephen C. Busquet in the Florida Historical Quarterly in winter 1998, the article entitled The Gangster in Our Midst, Al Capone in South Florida, 1930-1947. to If you want to learn more about uh, Capone's local impact here, that's a really great place to go. And lastly, I definitely want to single out myalcaponemuseum.com. It's a website run by Mario Gomez of Montreal, and I have to say I think it is the most detailed personal history website I have ever come across. And there is some really fascinating stuff about uh, Capone's time in Miami, and particularly Capone's death in Miami. You want to learn a little bit more, that's a great place to go. Again, thank you so much for your time and your attention. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. We will be back next month with another episode. And until then, I've been Matthew Bunch. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.